If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We continue our study in the life of Abraham. Today we're going to look at an extended passage, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Both chapters, I think, are familiar to many, but I suspect that what ties them together may have been lost. And by God's grace, may he give us understanding today. It begins with the visit of the three guests, the three visitors. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first 15 verses of chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought out some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set, them, set these before them. While they ate, he stood nearby them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent. He said, then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. Some things to consider about this passage. First of all, the time frame. Uh, We're not given specifics. But we do know from our study last week that the Lord had told Abraham that within a year, Sarah would have a son. And so the promise is repeated here in this passage. And as a result, I think we can surmise that this appearance of the three visitors happened very shortly after what we saw in chapter 17. We are told that the Lord appeared to Abraham But Abraham didn't know this at first. Um, Verse number one, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing by. So there's three men, but he doesn't know that one of them is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus in the flesh before he was born uh, of Mary. He will become aware as the day wears on who the visitors are. But at the beginning, he doesn't know. And yet he shows them great hospitality. Hospitality when it is quite inconvenient. 
you'll notice that it says that it is at the heat of the day. Well, that's when everyone's supposed to be taking a rest, a siesta, resting until the heat of the day passes by, and then you can once again be productive. Um, this is not a time for visitors or guests to show up. Um, it's a time to rest and to cool off. But Abraham runs to them. He hurries to show them hospitality. Um, he provides water so they can wash their feet. They wear sandals so they can you know, take off their sandals and wash their feet, and then he will provide food. Um, the hospitality includes the water for their feet, resting under the tree, and then food for their refreshment, also that they might be refreshed and continue on their journey wherever it is that they are going. And the visitors say, okay, you know, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. He tells Sarah to pre prepare three seahs of flour. A seah is seven quarts, about seven quarts. So that's 21, that's a lot of flour uh, for bread. Uh, and then he selects a choice tender calf, um, tells his servant to prepare it. He brings curds, which is the first stage in making cheese, so it's not quite yet cheese and milk. And as they eat, Abraham stands. He doesn't join in the meal. This is not for him. This is for them. So he's standing off to the side under the tree uh, as these three guests are eating. And at this point, Sarah becomes the topic of conversation. They want to know, where is Sarah? He's like, she's in the tent. And then the Lord said, and now we know that one of these three men is in fact the Lord. The Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. The promise is repeated. In chapter 17, by this time next year, and then in chapter 18, about this time next year. And it is the Lord. It's the Lord who is speaking. He had spoken in chapter 17, and now he speaks again in chapter 18. But Sarah laughs. Unless we think harshly of her, if you remember in chapter 17, Abraham laughed. So this isn't, you know, I think people remember that Sarah laughed and they forget that Abraham did. But it's just too overwhelming. It's, it's too impossible. She's like, I'm old, he's old. How, how am I going to have a son? I am past the age of childbearing. The Lord knew that she laughed. She said, no, I didn't. Yeah, yeah you did. Verse number 14 uh, if you had your own Bible or if you want to take notes, this is the key to these two chapters. Verse number 14 is, in my opinion, everything revolves around this verse. Is anything too hard for the Lord? One writer put it this way, we must say it is the fundamental question every human person must answer. And how it is answered determines everything else. How we answer this question will determine how we see everything. In Job 42, when Job recognizes how wrong he was, after God has spoken, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. In Jeremiah 32, he, Jeremiah affirms this truth. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. 
nothing is too hard for you. And then later on in the same chapter, the Lord says to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? So I said, how you answer this determines everything. If you say yes, there are things that are too hard for God. There are things that are impossible for God. Then the God that you say is God is in fact not God. Um, you're basically saying God does not have the radical freedom which is his. You hold on to the notion that the universe is all that there is and God is within that universe and there are some things he simply cannot do. But if you say nothing is too hard for the Lord, then you accept that God is free. God has freedom. And that ourselves, the world, everything are entrusted to him and no one else. Nothing is too hard for him. But we need to be careful that we don't answer this question too quickly or too lightly, as Abraham will discover as the chapter continues. Let's begin reading again in verse number 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he said to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of the 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. 
When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham went home. This is a familiar story, a familiar passage, so much so that I think the point being made here is often missed. Abraham is seen by many as bargaining with God in a way presumably setting a pattern for us in our prayer life with God. And I'm fairly certain that's not what's happening here. I hope I can show that to you. As with prayer, it is the Lord who initiates the conversation. The three get up to leave. They're headed towards Sodom. But the Lord stays behind with Abraham. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? The Lord begins this part of the conversation. And as we have seen, as we've looked at the study of prayer, God speaks and then we respond in prayer. We get that wrong so often. We think we begin the process and then God answers our prayers. When in fact, when we pray, we are answering what God has said to us. And that's what Abraham does here. The Lord begins with the promises made to Abraham. And then he continues hinting at the, well, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and hinting that something terrible is going to happen to them. Abraham is shocked. Although he knows what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, the two visitors that go down there are going to find out what it's like. He cannot believe that the God he has worshipped will in fact destroy Sodom. Yes, their sin is grievous. We're told this, by the way, all the way back in chapter 13. Do you remember when the four kings came down and they took all the people of Sodom captive? Um, In chapter 13, verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. This is not a secret. Everyone knows that this is happening. But what is hinted at is too much for Abraham. See, Abraham has connections with Sodom, and it's not just his nephew. I think most people are like, yeah, he's really worried about Lot, his nephew, who chose to live in that area, and his family. But again, in chapter 14, Abraham with 318 men in his, that belonged to his household, they go after the four kings and catch them in the northern part of Israel near Damascus, and they rescue all the people of Sodom, and then they bring them back. That's over 200 miles. But can't you imagine that in that process, Abraham got to know some of these people? These are not strangers. It's like, oh boy, those people in Sodom, they're so wicked. Okay, they may be, but Abraham had gotten to know some of these people. Yes, he wants his nephew and his family to be spared, But there are other people, people he probably knows by name. So it's not just about Lot. And it's not just about the people of Sodom. Ultimately, it is about God. If you say that nothing is too hard for the Lord, if you accept that God is radically free, he has freedom, and that we and everything in the world are entrusted into his care.
then there may be times when God does things that are unrecognizable to us and that are shocking to us, as happened in this conversation. Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing. The question boils down to this. Who are you? You called me and I left the known for the I left the known for the unknown. You made wonderful promises to me. You entered into covenant with me. You changed my name from Abram to Abraham. I don't recognize you now. You seem to be a monster to me. You will sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you to do such a thing. It's repeated, far be it from you. And then he asks the question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Simply put, Abraham is saying to God, you can't do this. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No, God has freedom. Abraham's like, yeah, but not that much freedom. You should not do this. You cannot do this. But Abraham doesn't leave it at that. He then begins a series of questions. What if there are 50 righteous people? Um, did he really think there were 50 righteous people in Sodom? I don't know. He, he knew the people of Sodom. On that 200-mile trek back to Sodom from northern Israel, uh, as he mingled with the people, did he think there were 50 righteous people? It is, in fact, the starting point in trying to get an answer to the question to God, who are you? Are you a monster? Will you kill good people with wicked people? And yet there is humility. In verse 27, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? That's 45. And then it goes down to 40. May the Lord not be angry. It goes down to 30. Again, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if there are 20? And then finally in verse 32, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found? One writer put it this way, the step-by-step descent in fives and tens is a terrified progress of one who feared lest every step forward should prove his last. He was afraid, but he wanted God to be God. I have followed you. I have listened to you. You have blessed me. You have made wonderful promises. But at this point in time, I don't recognize who you are. Have you ever wondered why did Abraham stop at 10? I mean, just to be on the safe side, there's Lot and his wife and his two daughters, that's four. 10 might be stretching it a bit. Why does he stop at 10? I think we may never know. However, I think we can rest assured that Abraham was now reassured. Each response to his questions 
for the 50, for the 45, the 40, for the sake of the 40, I will not do it. I will not do it if I find 30 there. The image of God is changing in Abraham's eyes. It's not a monster that he's talking to, but now someone who is familiar to him, the God of the covenant, and yet in some ways still incomprehensible. And yet in some ways, the God that Abraham knew better than he ever had before. A similar God and yet someone that he scarcely knew. He came to realize that God is a righteous God whose ways are beyond finding out. And Abraham was satisfied. That's why he stopped at 10, I think. Abraham was satisfied. In the words of one writer, whether Sodom was consumed or not, the universe was on solid footing. The storm might be terrible and its havoc beyond belief, yet all was well. It is not God who is changing in this process. It is Abraham who is. And he comes to see that God, who can do all things, nothing is too hard for him, is not um, some kind of monster. Someone who is free and someone who is gracious. It's hard to imagine how Abraham's knees did not tremble in the midst of this conversation. And yet at the end, he is reassured that God is God. And in verse 33, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. Abraham now sees God in a new light. After going through a period of darkness in this conversation, he now comes in some way to see the truth of who God is. Now we come to chapter 19. And the two angels, and we find out that they are angels in the first verse, is the Lord Jesus and the two angels who had come to Abraham. Now the Lord has left. The two angels have gone down to Sodom. This is what the conversation was all about. Is Sodom as bad as they say? Look, if you would, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. Uh, no, they said, um, we will spend the night in the square. It's a common practice, by the way. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. 
But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. Some things for us to consider. First of all, did you have a sense at all as we began reading this that it's very much like the beginning of chapter 18, right? These people are coming along. Abraham is sitting in his tent. He sees them and he runs out and wants to show them hospitality. These two men come to Sodom and Lot is at the gate and he sees them and he hurries out and he wants to show them hospitality. Um, And he insisted so strongly they were just going to stay in the town square, which was a common practice for travelers back then. But he insisted that they come to his house, spend the night there, we'll feed you, and then you can leave early in the morning. I think Lot knows this is not a safe place for men, for visitors to come. The men of Sodom, on the other hand, do not show hospitality, but rather sought to abuse the visitors. They come to Lot and they want these two men. And their wickedness is evident in what they want to do. Um, some people have argued, and more and more as we in the current time, that yet we have misjudged the men of Sodom, that they weren't in fact homosexual, they were not these men who wanted to do terrible things to these people, um, that they were guilty of other things. And indeed, when you read the prophets in Isaiah, uh, the issue is injustice. In Jeremiah 23, the issue is a variety of irresponsible acts. Um, And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. And then in Ezekiel, which we studied fairly recently, chapter 16. Now this was a sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So people would say, yeah, don't make too big a deal of this. This isn't about them being homosexual or you know, wanting to have relations with these two men to abuse them. Um, yeah, they were guilty of a lot of things. Okay, let's be clear about that. Because, by the way, the next verse in Ezekiel, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Yeah. So God's got a pretty clear picture of what's going on there. The contrast between Abraham and the men of Sodom is just so plain here that Abraham wants to show hospitality. The men of Sodom want to abuse the visitors that have come to their city. Yeah, it's, it's quite clear. But then something else becomes clear. And at least three times in our passage, the angels have to rescue Lot. The first time is they have to rescue him from the men who are trying to get into the house to get these two men, and they want to take Lot in the process. Um, They strike the men with blindness. Um, Some translations have a dazzling thing that they couldn't see what they were doing. And so they're not able to carry out what they want to do. 
So that's taken care of. The passage continues. Look, if you would, at verse number 12. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to, be mar- to marry his daughters. So they're still not married, but they're considered sons-in-law. They're engaged. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the, God, the, Lord, of the, hev- from the Lord out of the heavens. Then he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. The idea of the family is very strong in God's eyes. The idea of familial solidarity. So the angels ask about his family, do you have, and by the way, they know the answer to this question, okay? But do you have sons-in-law? Do you have sons or daughters? Do you have anyone else who belongs to your household so we can get them out? Yes, Lot is going to be rescued, but not just him. He's part of a family. He's the head of a family, and the whole family needs to get out. For the second time, Lot needs to be rescued. The first time from the men of Sodom, now he has to be rescued from himself. He hesitated. When he hesitated, they grab his hand, that of his wife, his two daughters, and lead them out of the city. The angels are like, listen, If you don't leave, you will be swept away. It's 
very much like the language that we found in the conversation between the Lord and Abraham. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Lot had to be rescued from himself. And then there's a famous story, though it's very brief here, of Lot's wife. Uh, I think the story of Lot's wife is very much like the prodigal son, in that when the young son gets his inheritance and he goes and he spends it wastefully, a whole sort of backstory is being created that's not in scripture. Um, In the same way, we're not told very much, simply that the angel said, don't look back. She looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. Um, I don't know about you, but I think I would have looked back. I would have been curious. You hear all this noise. You want to know what's going on. They were t- she was told not to look back, and she did. By the way, this is something that Jesus says. Uh, we find it in the Gospel of Luke. Remember Lot's wife. Once you've started down a path, don't look back. You know, once you have left Egypt, don't want to go back to Egypt again. And Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. For the third time, Lot has to be rescued. The angels tell him, you need to go to the mountains. And he's like, that's a long way. I, I don't know if I can make it. Maybe, maybe I could just, there's a little town over here, Zoar. Can I, can I just stay there? Um, one commentator has said not even brimstone will make a pilgrim out of Lot he must have his little Sodom again if life is to be supportable he's so used to the city life if you remember when we were studying when he chose to live he pitched his tent near Sodom because it was grassy it was green it's a great place to live Well, when we get to this chapter, he's in Sodom. He starts outside, nearby, and somehow he's moved in. And now that it is about to be destroyed, he wants to live in another city. It's a small town, but yeah. And the angels, God is gracious to him. The angels tell him, okay, yeah, go ahead. And then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroyed the city, destroyed the people, destroyed the land, the vegetation in the land. Just a side note here. This is one of the things I think that we oftentimes lose sight of. And that is, our sins are not just about us. They affect those around us and they affect creation. People today want to talk about climate change and the environment, um, having forgotten completely that our behavior, our disobedience affects the environment. And because of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, because what did the vegetation ever do to God? The vegetation's innocent, right? I mean, it hasn't done anything. But because of the sin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, everything is destroyed. Not just the cities and not just the people, but the whole plain, all the vegetation. The next morning, Abraham gets up and he goes where he had had that conversation with the Lord about 50 and 45 and 40. Got down to 10 and Abraham looks and 
It's been wiped out. It's as though a furnace had been established there. The smoke, the black smoke, it's toast. Apparently there hadn't been ten righteous people in Sodom. But we have this wonderful statement here. The Lord remembered Abraham. It's not as though God had forgotten. It is a statement of God's grace. He had not abandoned Adam, uh, Abraham. He had not abandoned Lot. And I would say for Abraham's sake, he had rescued Lot from the catastrophe. If somehow the conversation between the Lord and Abraham had not taken place, if the Lord had basically said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and there hadn't been this 50, 45, 40, where Abraham came to see that God, in fact, was not a monster, I think chapter 19 would have been quite different. Abraham would have been screaming and freaking out, I can't believe he did that. He is a monster. But now he knows that God is not, that God is free to do what is right, and God had judged the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What we find in these two chapters are two tasks. The two angels who accompany the Lord at the beginning, and then they go down to Sodom later, they have two tasks. The first was to promise a new beginning, that Sarah is going to have a son. This time, about this time next year, when the Lord returns, Sarah will have a son. So they are there to promise a beginning. The other task is to bring about an ending, the end of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the beginning of a new nation. From Abraham, it will go to Isaac, and then Jacob and his 12 sons. They are there to speak of a beginning but they're also there to bring about an ending. It is God's power to cause both, to create a new beginning out of this worn-out woman, as she put it, out of Abraham, this old man at this point is almost 100 years old. The Lord has the power to do that. He also has the power to bring about judgment. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We would be wise to consider this carefully and not just say, well, of course not. Nothing's too hard for God because God may do things in your life or in the life of others. You're like, where are you? Who are you? We know that God can do all things. But why aren't you doing something? We've asked and apparently your answer has been no. Are you, are you a monster? Do you not care? The disciples thought the same thing about Jesus when the, he was asleep in the boat and the storm came. Like, don't you care that we're about to drown? We need to ask ourselves quietly, carefully, Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
If we think there are things that are too hard for the Lord, then our situation is truly precarious. We are on a razor's edge. If we believe that nothing is too hard for the Lord, then we may be dismayed at what he does in our lives and the lives of others. And at that point, we need to come back to chapter 18 and to see the conversation between Abraham and God not being one of bargaining, haggling, trying to work, you work a deal with God to somehow get him to do what you want him to do. But for us to come to recognize that God knows what he's doing. God is gracious. And while we may not be happy, we may not understand what he is doing, he is the Lord. As we saw, he is El Shaddai, he's God Almighty. But more than that, he is a God of grace. And we see that grace, by the way, in chapter 19. Yes, he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, but three times the angels rescue Lot. There will be times in our lives, there may have already been times in your life, a time of great darkness. As Gia read to us today from the Psalms, no one cares for my life. Where are you? But Abraham came to see. And may we, through him, the father of our faith, see that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And what he does is right. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live thousands of years after the story of Abraham. We know how it ends. So in some ways, there's the separation has caused us not to think too deeply on this. In fact, very superficially, we see it as, oh, this is how I can make a deal with God. But in those dark nights in our lives, when it seems that you are absent, you may wonder, is this the God who called me? The God who made promises to me? The God who has blessed me and now has abandoned me? You have not. You've promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. But there are certainly times when we wonder. May we not be too quick to give an answer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? But may we, in humble faith, recognize that you are the Lord God Almighty. Even now, on some level, we're familiar with the story, but we tremble to think that the God who created the world destroyed entire cities because of their wickedness. May we, like Abraham, grow in our faith. Though we would not begin to claim that we understand you, 
in faith we come to see that you do what is best. You do what is right. May we think on these things, meditate on these things. And come to a deeper faith by your grace. I thank you for bringing us together today. We do remember Dan and Lonnie and ask that you would touch them. Give them strength, we pray. We're so grateful for them. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.